Welcome to The Grid. I am your host, Jennifer Shahadi, and we'll be taking a 13 by 13 episode journey through every possible No Limit Hold'em hand, 169 hands in total, from aces to seven deuce offsuit. Each episode, I'll interview another top poker player or personality about their hand. Once a combo is taken, it's gone. So this podcast will become progressively more difficult as hands like ace-king are removed from the grid. Whether you spend hours poring over grids as you study poker, love to listen to hand history pods while grinding cash, or are just interested in absurd scavenger hunts, we're going to have some fun. You got the cards. Dealer, I'm feeling it hit me. Yeah, I got swagger. They see me, see me strutting. All sweating daggers. Believe it, I'm the real thing. But I gotta switch it on. Hello and welcome back to The Grid. I'm with Peter Jenin today, a Canadian poker pro who has $9 million in live earnings, many of them quite recent, which we'll get into in a little bit. Peter was a very successful online pro in the early days of the poker boom and a prolific two plus tour. You might know him as Apathy. Today's hand comes from the main event of the Triton 127K. That's a rough translation to US dollars. This one was held in Montenegro back in May of 2019. And Peter ended up getting third place. In this particular hand, he holds 10-8 offsuit against Steve O'Dwyer. Tell us a little bit about when and where this hand took place. Thanks for having me on the show, Jen. Before I get into the hand, let me say I'm a big grid fan. I've loved all the episodes. Oh, awesome. Wow. What was your favorite one? Um, I think the the chess people I've, I've really enjoyed who I didn't know that well. And uh, the one with your brother was great, actually. It, uh, it brought back a lot of early 2 plus 2 memories for me. The STT forum on 2 plus 2 was how I first got into discussing poker with people and the thing that really ignited my interest in the game. So to hear him talk about Gigabet and him getting in fights with all the people on the forum about uh, poker strategy back in the day brought back a lot of memories. Yeah, STT meaning single table tournament for those of you who weren't around back in those days and think of them as SNGs or sitting goes. Yeah, they're not as big of a thing anymore, but uh, it used to be a popular poker format. Yeah, that's how Greg taught me how to play poker. I, I, I came into it a little bit later than he did, but he, he taught me via that format. That was a really fun episode, and it occurs to me you're the second Peter on the show, as we also had Peter's Fiddler. I was going to mention I really enjoyed uh, Peter's Fiddler's uh, thing also. I, I follow some of his chess content, and um, I haven't played that much poker with him because he is playing a lot of mixed games normally, and I usually stick to games where I only get dealt two cards. But um, yeah, I really enjoyed that one as well. Well, yeah, thank you so much. And this hand that you brought to me today is like really a great one. You know, on the grid, we go for hands that are either strategically interesting or have some kind of, you know, dramatic moment in a player's career or um, have a good story attached to them. And I feel like this one fits at least two out of three, maybe three out of three, depending on what you tell me in the podcast. (laughs) So yeah, I mean, this was against a villain that is very well known in the poker community, Steve O'Dwyer. But what about to you? Are you are you friends with Steve as well? I'm friends with Steve. And he's a really great guy, and he is a, an unbelievably good tournament poker player. So I'm you know, I'm never happy to be playing with him when it's for big money. But I was in this case, and uh, there were 14 people left in the tournament, and it paid nine spots. So. 
we were getting close to you know sort of money considerations in the tournament. Uh, the blinds are fifteen thousand, thirty thousand, with a thirty thousand big blind ante, and I have about twenty big blinds left after posting the ante. Steve covers me by a decent amount and raises to eighty thousand in the small blind, and I have the ten of clubs and the eight of hearts, and I decide to call. And the flop is ace, ten, nine, all hearts. So I have a flush draw and second pair, some backdoor straight stuff going on. I I was expecting him to check a bunch here and maybe bet some different sizes. And uh, he he ended up betting a really small size, 45,000. And I decided to call. The turn was a queen of spades. And he bet 140,000. And I decided to call again. I think that going all in on the turn is sort of a possibility. Maybe we can get to that later, but maybe the easiest decision of the hand anyway. I, but I call, and the river is a nine of diamonds, another nine, and he goes all in uh, covering me. The pot is about 560000 at this point, and I have 335000 left. I thought it was a very difficult spot, especially under the time pressure of a shot clock tournament. Um, but luckily I had lots of time remaining, so I was able to use a couple time chips without worrying about it. So I gave myself an extra minute or so to think about it and uh, decided to call him and hope he was bluffing. And luckily he was. He had the 7-6 offsuit with a flush draw with a heart. And uh, so, yeah, I wrote him a speeding ticket for 20 big blinds, and he had to send him over my way. Nice. And then you ended up coming third in that tournament, um, which was a, a huge score, the biggest cash you've ever had, right? Yeah, I went on a pretty big heater after winning this hand against Steve. This was sort of the big turning point of my of the tournament for me because it, had I decided to fold the river, and I think it is a very close decision, then I would have been left with 10 or 11 big blinds and I may not have made the money. And instead, I managed to ladder up all the way to third place. Actually, I almost got second. The end of this tournament was really, really weird, where uh, Danny Tang and I both had... Uh, Bryn and Makita gotten a huge flip preflop, and Bryn won it. And so he had this overwhelming chip lead, and the two of us were both trying to outlast the other one. <laughs> and uh, so that was like a pretty weird situation, but uh, Danny ended up getting second, and Bryn won the tournament. Wow, gosh, yeah, what a what a story event, and you did really well in Montenegro overall. It seemed like you cashed in a lot of events in Triton series in general. But to recap the hand, Steve O'Dwyer in the small blind raised your big blind to 80K. You called with 10-8 offsuit with the eight of hearts. The flop came ace-10-9, all hearts, and Steve bet very small, 45k into almost 200k. You called offsuit queen on the turn. Steve bet half pot. You called. And finally, nine of diamonds in the river. Steve went all in. You called for your last 335k from a pot of 560k. Now, starting with preflop, um, what did you think of his raise? Did you also expect he, Steve to be limping a lot of his range? I uh, was expecting him to be limping a lot, yes. I wasn't sure if... I, I'm also expecting him to just go all in sometimes. And I'm expecting him to raise like the size he did sometimes also. 
the fact that he might be playing preflop a little bit differently because we are approaching the money and it's a tournament instead of a cash game kind of influences what we should do after the flop a lot. But I wasn't terribly confident. My, my guess was that he was raising the small size a little bit more often than normal and maybe limping a little bit less often and still shoving about the same amount of hands that he would normally shove. Right. So you felt like his raising frequency went up and it, it kind of interests me in this hand, the, the flop size, as you mentioned as well, very small looking like it's trying to set up a, a three street barrel as opposed to, you know, if he made it a little bigger, maybe he would just jam the turn, right? Yeah. He sized it perfectly to get all the money in by the river, not by the turn, basically. And do you think that has a strategic advantage, maybe um, increase just by making that three street cream, um, increasing the fold equity on the river? Like, what do you think played into that decision, you know, to build the pot and then still get folds in the river? Why that instead of a bigger bed and then a jam in the turn? Yeah, I think that that's part of it. Since there are a lot of draws on the turn especially uh you know this is like a a good example of a turn where a bunch of straight draws uh become possible with hands that also had one heart in them so if he is bluffing and then sizes it in a way where he's giving me like uh a little bit worse than two to one on the turn then maybe he can't get me to fold some of the pair plus draw stuff because i just have too much equity but if I call and then miss, then uh, you know he can hope to get me to fold it on the river. So I guess there's there's that sort of benefit to it. I, I think that if he bet bigger and then played some shoves on the turn and a little bit more checks, I think that would be a fine strategy too. Right. So you don't think that this one's necessarily a better strategy, maybe like some kind of exploit or just like the strategy that he decided to use this particular time. So what went into your thinking on the river? Uh, so on the river, I, I know I have a bluff catcher. I obviously don't beat any value hands. I wanted to make sure that in a spot where I have a bluff catcher, I want to make sure that they're not bluffing with any uh, hands that are better than mine, which in this case, I, they're not. And I want to then check my cards that don't, like my kicker cards, to see how much they influence whether I should call or not. And in this case, it's kind of weird with the eight of hearts because that card does mean that he has less combinations of good hands, uh, certain good hands. But it also, if he's choosing to bluff with one heart in his hand and he's going to bluff only his sort of eight high, seven high, six high type hands, then it is also reducing the combinations of bluffs he could have. I didn't really know which way to lean with that one, and I just decided that it was very, very close, and I just went with my gut, basically. I thought that because I was expecting him to still shove a lot of bad offsuit aces preflop, that 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 reduced his combinations of aces. It's very hard for me to have an ace even in my hand. Like, most of the offsuit aces I'm going to shove over his raise preflop. So I need to make sure I'm not just way overfolding this river. You know, of course I could have a nine and I would call with that, or I could have a straight, or there's a bunch of flushes I could have. But when you add all of those up, I don't think that 
were defending enough, especially if he happens to be raising a little bit of extra bad hands pre-flop and then continuing with them post-flop. So I just decided that uh, this was one of the bluff catchers that I was going to call it this time. Great. I love to hear you say that because most of our high roller grid guests say that they use some kind of random number generator. And you're like, yeah, I use my gun. <laughs> Can you explain like kind of what that means? Like, Obviously, you, you mentioned the strategy that he's probably jamming most of his ASEX and you're re-jamming most of your ASEX. So there's that issue that he might be able to, to bluff you because you don't have enough ASEX to defend. But what do you mean by got like looking at him? He, can't, he doesn't have any tells, just kind of like an energy. Like wh- what was it? I don't think that I picked off a tell on him or necessarily an energy or something. Steve, Steve is so good and so good at the live element of poker. I'm going to be open to the idea that I could get a feeling like that, but I didn't in this hand. I, I basically just tried to come up with all the value combos of value hands he could have. And, you know, I, I need about 27% or something to break even on the river here. Maybe a little bit better because of the whole tournament uh, considerations. I just started thinking about all the possible um, the th- the thing that all the possible bluffs he could have, and the thing that tipped me w- uh, over to calling was that I think that he would consider taking a different line, either either different sizes or checking somewhere with a lot of good strong hands. Not that he would do that with all of his strong hands, but I think many of them would be interested in trying to slow play at some point or betting a bigger size at some point. But his bluffs, his his semi-bluffs that kind of want to realize their equity would often take this line with the smaller bets. So I, I just thought he probably had enough bluffs to to call a bunch of bluff catchers. It's funny because that means basically like when you say gut, you're saying your gut of what the math would be if you had like 10 minutes to solve it. So it's like you don't have infinite time to count all the combinations. So the gut is referring to that mathematical process with your abbreviating with a little bit of quick work. It's it's funny because that's not, I feel like for some people that's not exactly what gut means, but it makes sense for obviously a theoretical student of the game. Yeah, and, and some of it too is is sort of a, like more simple ideas. Like, let me think about this guy, Steve O'Dwyer. Would he try to do this? Would he do this and be bluffing me? Would he run this big bluff on me? And then I think like, yes, he would. He would do that. Okay. <laughs> so, like some people just don't have it in them to bluff often enough, even if theoretically they should have enough combos. Uh, but Steve is not one of those people. What about at the more recreational or less elite level? Do you feel like there's any kind of takeaways that we can give to the audience about what somebody trying to make it three streets as opposed to two streets often means in these types of situations? Like, do you feel that it's bluffier, more value Sure. And I'm not necessarily applying this to uh, why Steve chose the line he did in this hand. But uh, in general, I think that you might find opponents betting uh, like a smaller amount or sort of a blocky type size earlier in the hand in situations where they want to get to the next card for that amount. And that can mean a few different things, but a lot of the time it means that they have some type of draw or some type of vulnerable hand that can only still be good if you don't raise. And so after you made the call, did you feel amazing or were you mostly just kind of 
chill because you're just playing poker and, you know, it's normal to make good calls once in a while. No, I was very pumped up about it. The feeling of making a big call in poker for a bunch of money and being right is, uh, I don't know, it's up there. It's up there for the types of ways you can win hands in poker, uh, for me at least. Also, uh, Makita said that that was a very impressive call when he saw the cards. So uh, I was very complimented by that. And yeah, I was feeling great. Wow, that's a, that is a good compliment. I did hear that when I saw the live stream, but I wasn't sure whose voice it was. And that 10-8, I, I wanted to ask also, big calls being the greatest feeling in poker, um, is that because maybe like if you make a big bluff, no, not everybody knows, so you can't really enjoy your moment as much? To well, me- I did say one of I did say one of the best feelings. Making a big bluff that works is is also an incredible feeling, and you do, and especially if they think very hard about calling you because you have that adrenaline of uh, you know quietly in your head uh, begging for a fold and then it working. <laughs> it's funny though; they're a little bit different in terms of the way they feel, right? I think it's partly because the bluff it's like your own secret, even if it's live stream, not everybody at the table knows it right away. Whereas you can fully enjoy your victory when you make the big call down. Yeah, that might be it. So I was looking at your hand in mob, and it seems that recently you've been playing a lot more high rollers, particularly these tridents. What was behind that shift? Well, uh, I just uh, went out to one of the trident stops, and uh, I had been learning short deck uh, for a few months and wanted to play it at a high level and see where everyone was at with the game. And... I just I had such a great time. The way that the Triton tours are run is much different than a lot of uh, the poker stops I'd been used to in the past. Um, you know, since it's only higher stakes events, the service is just a lot better, and the destinations were interesting places that I wanted to visit. And then since the first trip went well, I haven't missed a Triton since. As you started to play in more of these high roller events, you were playing with a lot of people who'd been playing high rollers more consistently when they started, I guess, what was it, four or five years ago? I played like uh, 100K in Australia many years ago, and I think I'd played like a few big tournaments in Monte Carlo or, or PCA or something like that, but I had usually been skipping the high rollers. But just um, something about the the way everything is in the at the Triton stops, I guess. I, I just, I find it all very comfortable and very fun. Um, was there anything you felt like you had to work on your game to be prepared to play in the high rollers that you hadn't been playing with everyone for the last few years? Or did you feel like it was okay to just like jump in and just, you know, use what you had? I mean, I like to, I like to watch my opponents since they play so many hands on, on TV. I thought it was important to try to at least watch some of their cards up play and see if I could learn anything from that. But you'd been working on your game all those years anyway, even though even if you hadn't been playing in those tournaments. Yeah, I'd, I'd still been playing some poker. But was there like anything that you felt you really needed to bone up on besides like the cards up play to kind of catch up on ranges? Like you just said, I, I had never stopped playing poker. I just wasn't traveling as much. Wasn't traveling to play the big tournaments and things like that. I, I don't know. I, there's been times when I haven't done that much work on poker and there's been other times when I've been more motivated but the most fun thing to me is jumping in there and playing and figuring it out from there so that's always my priority right so once you get in there you start studying more because you're just in there and thinking about the hands that you've played if you think that you might have 
made a mistake that cost uh, like half a million dollars in equity, you're probably going to feel pretty sick about that and try to figure out if you could prevent the same mistake to happen in the future. Did that happen to you? And in this tournament, I made a terrible mistake. It wasn't a lack of fundamental knowledge that forced me into the mistake. It was kind of a a gross over-adjustment of a read I had on somebody I hadn't played with before, uh, who was Danny Tang. He also is in a sort of a similar situation to me where even though he he, he played way more uh, live poker than I did, but he hadn't really played very many high rollers. And so I, I didn't have much exposure to him. And I just had kind of the wrong idea about how he would approach this situation, a certain situation. And I made a very bad fold because of it. Or I mean, I, that might have been with seven or eight people left. And then I was sort of fortunate to get third. So it didn't really cost me a lot of money, but it was a pretty bad mistake. <laughs> At least you can logically explain why that you, you made an exploit that was wrong. Yeah, kind of. It, it's still, right after the hand happened, I felt bad about it. And then uh, when I saw the result, I just, I, I think it's the worst hand I've played all year. So it was, it's sort of a fun, it's sort of funny to talk about this Steve hand because I was thrilled that he didn't have me beat when I called and I uh, was all high on myself. And then, uh, you know, half a day later, I think I played the worst hand of my whole poker career or not, not, sorry, not whole poker career, but whole year, the worst hand of my year. Do they cancel each other out or does the win feel sweeter than the loss felt horrible? Emotionally, I was probably more upset about the mistake, um, but only for a day or two and, the fact that I still had a good result in the tournament made me feel less bad about the mistake. Also, I wouldn't have been in a position to make the mistake if I hadn't called the river against Steve, probably. So, uh, yeah, that's just that's how it goes sometimes in poker tournaments. Yeah, I guess it's hard because it's like you're. It's easier to make um, a, a mistake that loses a lot of money than to somehow make a call that wins lots and lots of money, especially when you're playing against Steve, right? A lot of very good poker players only look at things in terms of mistakes. They don't, there's no, like, they don't have a measurement for an overachieving play. It's just basically, did you make a mistake? How big was the mistake? And if you didn't make any mistakes, great. That's the goal. It sounds to me like you're um, leading to the fact that that's a bad way to think about poker, that you should be also thinking about the overachieving possibilities. Well, I, I think that it, I'm sure it works for some people strategically, but it is a tough way to uh, handle poker emotionally, I think. A lot of people are aware of the psychological thing in gambling where winning is not, does not feel as good as losing feels bad. Right. So you would think that you would quit gambling then, right? And uh, well, yeah, except everyone loves gambling still. It's, even, despite that, gambling is still awesome. <laughs> I guess what I'm trying to say is if you're only hard on yourself when you do things wrong and you're not proud of good decisions that you make, then you're going to lead yourself into a you know path of unhappiness in your poker. And poker should be fun. And I like to have fun playing poker. I have a lot more fun when things are going well and I'm making the right decisions. And I try to enjoy that well when it's happening. When things are going wrong and I'm making bad decisions, I try to not shut it out and feel those feelings 
and then move past them. I think that's a great point, you know, because at first when you were saying this, overachieving, I have to say I thought I was thinking that you were talking about exploits, that overachieving play meant that you're open to making an exploit that could win quite a lot of money. Yeah, I think it can, but also just um, getting something right. Mm -hmm. Like, I want to have this strategy in this situation, and then you're presented with a situation similar to that, and you choose the correct strategy, and then you think back on it, and you you think, wow, I really executed my plan there. You should take some pride in that. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. And, you know, maybe one of the reasons that a lot of poker players have developed that way is that um, they want to be courteous or, you know, not a jerk at the table, so they don't want to outwardly celebrate when they make, like, a great call or a great bluff. But the lack of outward celebration also means that maybe they're not allowing themselves to feel proud about themselves as well or excited or happy that they're like bottling it all in. So how do you deal with that? Because like I know you don't like, you know, rub it in your opponent's face. Everyone can tell if you're being aggressive towards somebody else in your celebration or if you're just happy and it doesn't have anything to do with your opponent. But there are plenty of situations where I'm feeling happy and I will bottle it up uh, for the good of the game and to not be a dick. Um, But, you know, it it sort of depends on the situation, I guess. But but even just being happy inside your own head is something that a lot of people don't allow themselves in in poker, I think. They just want to be robots. Fascinating. I mean, I think this is really applicable to life as well. For sure. If you could be robotic in a way where you didn't feel super joyous when you made good decisions, but you also didn't feel any pain when you lost like I can see the value in that but I think it's very hard not to feel any pain when you make bad decisions or when you lose yeah and that, and that's the more powerful emotion that will get through your your barriers you've tried to build up do you feel like this is something that people have to do in order to psychologically survive there's a bigger uh, variance in how people handle that than uh, outsiders would guess Sometimes it's obvious on the live streams, and sometimes it's more things that you'll notice on breaks or, or off camera, but uh, some people hang their hearts on their sleeves and get emotional about things, even if it doesn't appear that way on the table. And others, I think, try and are more or less successful at shutting that stuff out. I, I, I'm somewhere in the middle, I think. And is this something that's developed for you as a skill throughout your poker career? I used to be better at handling losses, I think, than I am now, which is kind of strange. You would, you'd think that you would always improve at that sort of thing. I, I used to not care about swings or money or results much when I was younger, and now I seem to care a little bit more. Do you think it's because you didn't play super high rollers back then, or just more that you have more adult responsibilities? I, I'm not sure. I, I've thought about it a bit, and I don't know the answer for sure, but... Um, Maybe it's just that when I was young, I was crazy and didn't care about anything, and it was all just a big whirlwind. And what do you miss most about those early days of your poker career, online poker, two plus two forums? It was a lot different being more of an outsider in poker, and it it was a different time in gambling and in poker as well, because there were so many people my age sort of all trying to learn poker at the same time and starting up. I was kind of thinking about all this stuff when I was listening to uh, your brother Greg's uh, the, the podcast, and he was talking about getting in arguments uh, with Gigabit or like Team Gigabit versus Team Curtains on on two plus two all the time because of their competing poker theories. And 
it made me think of of the story that like uh, I had developed a gigabit theory. Your brother, you see, so okay to understand this for most of your listeners, you have to go back and listen to the to Greg the Greg Shahadi podcast. He talks a little bit about giga blocking and this theory about where you want the chips to be at the table in poker tournaments and sort of these kind of like out there ideas about making fairly bad plays in order to either end up with a bunch of the chips or have them go somewhere else that's not that bad for you, basically. And I, I played with him sort of years after he stopped posting on 2 Plus 2, but just before he kind of quit poker. I'm not sure where he is uh, these days, uh, Daryl Dickin. And he, I, I played with him at this tournament, I think in Connecticut, and he took so many smoke breaks during the actual tournament and missed so many dealt hands that I came up with a theory that he was intentionally missing his blinds so that people would go broke against each other fighting for his free blinds. And then, you know, he didn't like the chip disc distribution at the table, so he'd leave and take a break. And then the cutoff and the button would get all in against each other trying to win his dead big blind, and then the chips would be better distributed for him, and he'd come back and crush us all. <laughs> yeah, how'd that work out for him? I think he probably just loved cigarettes, though. I don't think it was, uh, <laughs> I don't think it was a strategical theory. And you were on, no doubt, Team Curtains, right? I hope so. I think that I was largely lurking in those threads and when he called out a bunch of people who are quite good poker players now for disagreeing with him uh he didn't mention me so i think that i at the very least stayed out of those threads but uh, he he was always the one that made the most sense to me which actually brings me to a question you're not that active on social media but one very well-known thing that you do is every year on january 1st you announce the theme of the year how did this come about, and can you give us any insights into what 2020 is going to be? Basically, every year we look at the number we were calling the last year, and we add one to it, and then we use that for another year. Boring. Numbers. Who needs them? We would be able to remember our lives and when certain things happened better if we named each year a thing that the year was going to be. And But we can't just randomly pick words because that won't stick mentally and if we just pick something that we're feeling at the moment then that will end up just being really what the last year's theme was and really you need the next year's theme so all of this came to me in a dream and the uh first year the year of justice was basically foretold to me by an oracle in a dreamlike state and Every year, I try to get back in touch with that oracle and find out what the next year will be called. And um, so to answer your question about next year, you know, it seems like 2020 should just be the year of vision because that's like kind of funny. But the, the oracle hasn't communicated with me yet. And um, when they do, I will, I will announce it. Wow. So how do you get in touch with that oracle? Is it really just by going to sleep? You got a lucid dreaming type thing going on? Uh, it's more just intentionally opening my mind to the universe to be open to somebody telling me uh, what the next year is going to be. The most memorable of the years that you picked out, by the way, for me was science, probably because my my friend Ben Yu would, um, I think, called the year of science for many, many years after actually 2013 when you called it the year of science. But yeah, the Oracle told me next year will be the year of science. And then on January 1st, I announced it as per the wishes of the Oracle. And then one year later, uh, Webster's Dictionary said that science was the word of the year. Wow, that was good timing. 
But I think that in poker, like that kind of uh, lingering debate of the gigabyte versus curtains debate that we just talked about and the idea of using your gut versus using math and science in poker. Obviously, now it's so strongly swayed towards using math, right? That when people talk about intuition or gut feeling, it's kind of like embedded within that idea is a lot of math. Where it didn't always used to be that way, right? Like before your your oracle talked to you, and even since then, there was an idea that sometimes you didn't need math at all for this game. Math is just sort of a general way to say knowledge of the game, I think. If you took somebody who never, ever played poker before, and then you told them the hand rankings, but they kind of didn't remember them, and then they have a royal flush, they remember that they should call all their money in or put all their money in, that could kind of be an intuition that they thought this was a good hand, even if they didn't quite remember. And that can extend to the most complicated of poker strategy, I think. So it can just sort of be, you know, you can think, oh, how does this situation work? And then the more knowledge you have about it, your intuition uh, or gut feeling is going to get uh, sharper and sharper. Sounds like 2020 might be the year of memory. (laughs) Not that I'm secretly the Oracle, just, you know... Could be. All right. I will be open to that possibility. I recently gave a talk in which I said that to be a great chess player, a great poker player, you don't have to have a great memory, but you have to be good at memorizing things. What's your take on that? I think that having a very good memory is a huge advantage in poker. Uh, As far as how I consider my ability, I think that I'm probably average at memory or a little bit above average. And it does take a fair amount of effort for me to memorize things. And certainly you have to do that a little bit. Now, it sounds like to me, from what you said prior in this podcast, a lot of your memory is through experience. So you're not necessarily um, memorizing most effectively by staring at charts or using like quiz apps to memorize charts, but by making a mistake in game and then reviewing it later and having it stick. Trial and error, repetition, being mindful of decisions that happen and not just moving on mentally to the next thing so that you can correct yourself if mistakes happen instead of not noticing them. Things like that, uh, I think, have been valuable to me. Not moving on to the next thing? What do you mean by that? In live poker, but it's way easier uh, to make this mistake online if you're playing more, more than one table. You can play a hand and not be plenty of hands at Lots of different decision points and lots of different hands. I don't know for sure what to do. I, so I guess. And it's easy to just look at the next hand you get dealt and forget about the guess you made the hand before. But if you instead ask a friend about it later or think about it a little bit more later or look it up on a calculator later, you're going to remember the decision that you made, whether it was correct or not, and hopefully that will stick in your brain for next time. Sounds like you're very present when you play poker. If I'm playing well, (laughs) yeah. The year of presence, 2020. (laughs) (laughs) Another good one. Another good one. I mean, there's a lot of possibilities. I I have to say I have a bold prediction. It's not going to be vision. Too obvious, man. Yeah, it it is a little on the nose. But like I said, it's up to the Oracle, not me. Yeah, it could be. Well, you know, thank you so much, Peter, for this uh, amazing hand. I mean, it's not only a relatively difficult hand to click off the grid, but it's also 
in a high stakes tournament at a pivotal moment in your career as you started to play more high rollers and your biggest tournament victory with well you didn't win the tournament but you won over a million dollars yeah it was an unbelievable um few days and week for me there and this was a really pivotal hand in that week do you have any kind of superstitions yourself do you kind of have like a fond spot in your heart for 10-8 offsuit now that you have played that hand you know what i probably i probably will develop one now that i've spent all this time talking about it 10-8 offsuit i'm gonna take that one to the wire next time it's like one of those things in life where once you have a hand where you've won so much dollar amount equity with 10-8 offsuit like you're very unlikely to ever go in the red with that hand, right? I think I need a name for it. <laughs> if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna have, if I'm gonna have it be a hand that I do crazy stuff with, it needs a cool name. So we'll have to come up with that before naming next year. And what is the most underrated hand in the poker grid that people are like just not playing or three betting enough with um, preflop? King seven offsuit. Did you just make that up, or you really believe it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I I, I kind of believe it. Wow. wow. It's, a, it's an underrated it's an underrated hand. <laughs> I would say so. King seven lawsuit. That is an underrated it's not a well rated hand, so I guess it doesn't need to be very much better than that for it to um be appreciated. If if it's folded to you and you're on the button and there's there's some anties in there, you can start firing some money in there. Good things are going to happen. King seven offsuit. All right. Now we know your your king plus range. What do, you, what do you think is going to be the trickiest hand to check off on the grid for you? Maybe like something like a nine deuce off. I, I had nine deuce off or like king deuce off. Just like random high card, low card hands, I think. With no. Okay. I don't, I don't want to put myself too out there until the grid is getting right down to the more difficult ones to find. But. If you'll have me back on the show, I will try to make a crazy play with a hand that is needed for the grid. Yeah, great. Maybe it'll be King 7 off. <laughs> well, now that I just uh, gave away the secret on King 7 off, surely somebody else will have a King 7 off hand before I'm back on. King 7 off, it sounds like that might be like the nut low hand in a game that you quite like, short deck poker. It's not a great hand in short deck. Well, I guess King Six is even worse, but like it's, it's, it's it's rated King Seven off is rated appropriately at short deck, but it's underrated at full deck. All right, well, thank you so much, and of course, you can find him at Peter Jedden on Twitter. He's not actually that active with media stuff, though, so I really particularly appreciate you coming on the grid. I mean, you don't do that many interviews. No, I don't. But like I said at the at the start, I'm a huge fan, so I'm glad you could have me on. Yeah, thank you so much. And yeah, we'll be calling you back up when I've got the grid 75% filled and looking for some of those King 7, King Sing off, King 6 offs. I look forward to it. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for listening to thepokergrid.com. Please subscribe, review, and tell your friends about your favorite episode. If you want to support my projects, consider a tax-deductible donation to U.S. Chess Women. We are working to even the mind sports playing field by bringing more women and girls into chess. Till next time, as we count down 169 hands. No one ever bust. They say I'm lucky. Oh, no, no need to bluff. With all the cheap tricks up my sleeve. Yeah, I got talent.